на трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. Last night, Krasnodar defeated Pauk 2-1 away without Wonderson and Christopher Olsen and secured their first ever appearance in the Champions League group stages. Despite the match itself being only their 500th ever competitive fixture, we'll be deep diving into that and what is a bit of a European football-themed episode this week, as we'll also explore the two Europa League player failures in Rostov and their fire sale and Dinamo Moscow, who became the second RPL side of the season to sack their manager at the weekend. Joining me once again is David Sanson. Hello, hello. And Richard Pike. Good evening, everybody. How are we all? You know, after last night, I'm pretty happy. I was trepidatious. I was nervous going into it. But finally, Sergei Galitsky steered Krasodon at the Champions League group stages. The club's only existed for 12 years now, and this is the second youngest new side to reach the UCL proper. Only Astana of Kazakhstan were younger upon their appearance in 2015, while RB Leipzig were a rebrand of SV Makronstadt. Thus, this is the first time in Soviet or Russian history that the nation now has three representatives in the Champions League group stages. To quickly go through the game, news prior worried all Bulls fans as it emerged that Mercurial winger Wanderson had not travelled due to injury, while Marcus Berg, Caio and Sergei Petrov were all too doubtful, as the Swede himself was actually training alone in the eve of the match. In the end, Wanderson missed out as expected, along with Christopher Olsen, who was away at the birth of his child. Daniel Utkin and Yuri Kaczynski replaced the pair as Remy Cabela moved out wide and Captain Alexander Martinovic also replaced Diego Sorokin at centre-back. The first half ended goalless as Krasnodar were naturally and expectedly forced onto the back foot for large swathes, but in truth they were quite comfortable defensively. The experienced duo of Kaczynski and Martinovic helped there quite a bit, and then in the second half, around the hour mark, Marod Masayev surprisingly introduced Igor Smolnikov at the expense of Utkin and lined up in a, him in a mixture of right wing and right wing back roll is at times Krasnodar looked to be playing 4-4-2 in attack, which is very unorthodox, as Bulls followers would know. He was released by Cabela down the left wing and played in Berg. However, Pauk defender Ioannis Michalidis comically put the ball in his own net with a brilliantly accidental finish. This started off a wild spell in which three goals were scored within three minutes, with Pauk equalising next to a free header from a, cu- from a free kick by Omar El Kaduri. Then, just later, Cabela put the tie to bed after beating the offside trap and getting his second goal of the tie. So, David, it was quite a difficult tie for Krasnodar, so full credit for achieving Galitsky's dreams of finally securing the UCL group stage qualification at the second time of asking. So what did you think of the game? Well, like you, I was uh, I was bricking it up, the build-up to the game, even like, days before. Just, you know, the whole week was around, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Um, you know, I had the faith that if they could score, you know, it would be, it would be game done. Um, as soon as he got to half time at nil nil, I was I felt I felt more confident. I was like, right, this this is a good, you know, this is a good step they've got to here. You know, they they've not been necessarily dominated that first half. They they um, sat deeper than they had in the first leg. You know, the first leg Pauk started strong, and then after about twenty five minutes, Krasnodar started to mainly have most of the play. Whereas the first half here, it was mainly Pauk, but evolved into more of a 50-50 game towards the end of the half. Um, and then Smolnikov coming on, I mean, it was it was a masterstroke. 
because Pau were, were were controlling the ball even more in the second half. You know, they weren't they weren't getting proper good chances. They had a, they had a very good chance off a corner, as I recall, was like the best chance they'd had before the goal. Uh, you know, Stefanov had, had dealt with most things some sometimes very well and sometimes a bit unorthodoxly, but he dealt with most things uh, that came his way. Um, so when Smolnikov came on, uh, I thought, you know, I was a bit surprised. I was thinking, right, well, where's, where's Smolnikov going to play? Because, you know, that's three fullbacks they got on the pitch now. And then he was popping up all over the shop. He was down the right wing. He was down the left wing. It was uh, it was inspired, you know. He completely changed the game because the one thing they were crying out for was a bit of pace, and uh, you know, arguably in that squad, he he or Shappy were the two who who could give him the pace. And uh, you know, he got away a number of times down both wings, um, and eventually it was the first goal. You know, he got away. Cross was a bit naff, but it made the defender still have to do something because Bird was there behind him, and that's all he that's all he could manage to do, and you know, it paid off. So, um, you know, I got to give credit to Masai. You know, we, he gets criticised. I've criticised him in the past for his game management, especially in European ties. But he, I felt like he managed this tie very well. You know, that sub, I, I had never thought about that making that sub. Um, but it, it was a masterstroke and it changed the tie because, you know, without that sub, that chance that created the goal, which forced Pauk out, Never happens. No other player on the pitch at that point was going to make that run and get to that ball like Smolnikov could. So, as much as people say it was a lucky goal, you know, the, the decision to bring Smolnikov on is what has forced that goal. So, um, so yeah, all credit to Messiah. He, he managed the game very well. So, Richard, do you think that Krasnodar's current squad is strong enough to compete for qualification to the knockout stage? Oh, it's a good squad. Um, but if you um, you do worry about it in certain areas, I think the two glaring areas where they could look to strengthen is probably central defence and central striker. Um, I think they've got a good midfield. They've got options in the wide areas and in attacking midfield areas. Um, very good left back, obviously, in uh, Christian Ramirez. It's probably central defence and central striker, really, where I think they, they could probably do with strengthening. However, it just becomes very, very difficult. I know the transfer window shuts soon, so you'd think now that they've qualified for the Champions League group stages, um, that you know they'd be in the market straight away. Straight, but it's not quite that simple because they're already up to the eight-player foreign limit. So if they're going to want to sign someone. They're going to have to obviously let someone go. Um, we were actually we were discussing, weren't we, in the chat about who they might sacrifice, which one of the foreign players, and the two that came to mind were probably Olsen and um, Villania, the two central midfielders, uh, Christopher Olsen and Tony Villania. And we were thinking one of those two might go. And it's quite interesting how it sort of splits. Some people wanting Olsen to go, some people wanting Villania to go. I mean, it might probably might be Olsen might be the player they might sacrifice because I think they paid a lot of, they paid a lot more for Tony Villania than, than Olsen. So, and obviously they've got players like Kaczynski in midfield too. So maybe Olsen might be the player they might sacrifice. Um, I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to find two foreign spots free for another striker. Berg, Marcus Berg is a decent striker. Um, I think if Krasnodar really wants to go up a level and win the RPL, they're going to need a better striker than him. But I think for the time being, he'll do. He's got one year left on his contract, and at 30, he's 33 years old now. So I think next summer, he'll probably be, he'll be gone in the summer. I think Krasnodar will just let his contract expire and sort out the striking position then, and that would free up another foreign spot. But yeah, if I was if I was uh, Krasner, no, until the window shut, I'd definitely get a central central defender, and I'd try and look for a bidder for Olsen, and uh, try and find a central defender. 
uh, because obviously they've let um, Uros Spajic go out on loan, so they don't know Martinovic, Sorokin and um, Kyle. And even though we play well against um, against Pauk, you know, Kyle can still have his off moments. So, you know, another another central defender in there to with Martinovic to add more depth. Um, and I think um, that's the best thing that, that they can do at the moment, really. Ideally, they're the likes of sort of at the striking position too, but I think um, probably just going to have to be a central defender. Hopefully, something's in the pipeline. But I just want to reiterate um, what you guys have just said there. Fantastic stuff for Cresta. I was really worried before the game as well, um, especially when I heard the news about Vanderson not playing. Echo what David said, great sub with Smolnikov coming on, fresh legs, fresh energy. Um, Safanov, I thought, had a good game in goal. You know, he dealt with everything that he needed to. And um, and yeah, also getting through with two wins too. And every win, every kind of coefficient point the RPL can get at the moment counts. So I'm very, very happy that they, they managed to get through with two wins So because uh, it's extra coefficient points and boosts. So fantastic stuff. And um, let's see how they're doing, um, how, how they do it in, in the Champions League. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I echo that myself and Smolnikov. I think what it needed was, was this, that wise head. And obviously, they brought in Gazinski, they brought in Martinovic, and that you could see from the first leg, the team was just much calmer. They, they're a very calming influence. They're very influential figures in the Krasnodar dressing room. They've been there for years. And Smolnikov brought a little bit more of that onto the pitch. He's that experienced head. He's been playing forever. He's played at every level. He's played this elite level before, which is where Krasnodar do miss out. And Krasnodar have got a very talented team of players. But people like Sorokin and Kayo and even Martinovic at centre-back, they don't really have a huge amount of elite experience. And on, on the topic of strengthening, I think that's, I would agree, that's one of the first ports of call. Now, I always say that Krasnodar are a little bit top-heavy, but they're not really top-heavy. It's kind of like midfield-heavy. They bought in people like Vilhena, they bought in Kabea to bring that experience from these European competitions, be it Champions League or Europa League. They both have that. And then they need a little bit of that at the back. They need a Chorluka-like character and Ivanovic-like character. Or Lovren, not really, maybe as old as Ivanovic, but somebody who has a real huge amount of experience at this level. And it will have to be a foreigner because that just doesn't exist in Russia right now or the Radzenis. But on Masayev himself, now Masayev, as David rightly mentioned, he has come under fire of late. With Krasnodar, I mean, let's be honest, they have underperformed. But to be fair, they've been wrecked by injury with Kabea, Vanderson, Niklasen, Ari and Gazinski all suffering long layoffs in the last 18 months amidst a host of others. So Masayev, as you mentioned, did change it up a little bit. So David, were these changes forced? Or I mean, you've, you've kind of glowing, reported glowingly a bit about Masayev there and about Wanderson missing. Just how big was that for Krasnodar? Well, yeah, you know, he would have been the guy who would have been making those runs that Smolnikov came on to make um, if he if he was fit enough to play. You know, we, we've we've uh, been raving about Wanderson of late. You know, he's he's really coming into his own as one of one of the best players in the league. Um, so to have him missing, confirmed missing, was was a blow. You know, but um, we we were looking at the squad and you know we we looked at the squad and we saw you know thought if. If the guys who were injured aren't, you know, aren't properly injured, and you know, we in the end, Berg, Petrov, and Kayo all did start. Uh, we knew the squad there was good enough to compete still. Like they could make the necessary changes, and he did make the necessary changes. You know, the midfield of Kaczynski, Kiel, and Vilenia is still a solid midfield, and a forward three of Kabela, 
and Klassen and Berg are still a good front three. You know, it doesn't quite have the pace, but they're all very good players still. So um, you know, he, 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 you know, he managed his squad well with what you know, given the circumstances, and uh, yeah, it was done really well. I think uh, I think he did well. Um, I agree with Richards. I, I mean, I personally prefer Olsen over Valenia, but um, I think one of those two has to go, and they, they need to try and get a foreign centre half in. You know, try and try and go big on a foreign centre half, a big big money signing if they can. Um, but I think it would be tricky. Um, uh, and and therefore it could be a could be a difficult season. You know, the, the squad's good, good on paper. You know, they'll compete. We know we know they can compete at the top level uh, if they if they want it. Um, but yeah, they could definitely do with the with the reinforcements um, in, in defence and up front if possible. One thing that Krasnodar haven't done yet, well, they haven't learned from. And maybe because they haven't oh, too often went very deep into European football and, and that we've mentioned that they're right on the squad limit in terms of foreigners. But they haven't done what Zenit have done of late and what Loco have done and what Spartak did a couple of years ago where they get kind of the best of the rest of Russians and that makes up your weekend fixtures. You keep the people like Abea fit for midweek in Europe and then like Zenit have, you, you start... Asmun Zuba in the big game, and then the next game, uh, Yerakin comes in because Yaev of late would come in, Sutom, and that's exactly why they brought these guys in. It's it's that's managed the two things, and Messiah's game management at the weekend to to realise where the issue was and to remedy it very proactively was brilliant, but he needs to now manage the squad ready for this European level. I think Krasnodar, obviously we are biased here, but I think Krasnodar could surprise some of the maybe non-Russian viewers who don't really know who they are, might just think that they are uh, the minnows or whatever. They don't really recognise the name because, let's be honest, outside of Russia, they aren't really a highly recognisable name, especially to the general public and not those in football. But Krasnodar's team, as you mentioned, is very good. But they now need to get a squad together that can fulfil their promise essentially and Richard has mentioned earlier Kabea has missed huge parts of last season through injury but since the Covid break I think he's been nothing short of brilliant to be fair he was signed now as mentioned he was signed to make Krasadar more of a force in Europe and unfortunately within what was it a fortnight of his signing he went down with a bad knee injury and was out for almost the full season so it's good to see him being the architect of their current European success so, Richard, what did you think about his performance against Pauk over both legs? I thought he was absolutely um, excellent over both legs, and you can tell his experience shone through there. I think, I'd, if I remember correctly, he was part of the Montpellier side all those years ago. I think it's 2011-12 who won league earn. So, you know, he's got such um, a good pedigree. You know, he's experienced of top five European leagues. And I thought he, he really controlled that first leg, um, really ran the attack in the in the final third for Krasnodar. Um, and he also had a good game um, last night as well. You know, he had to slightly shift uh, position, didn't he? Because Utkin had to come more centrally because obviously Vanderson wasn't fit. Um, but uh, no, it was it was two very good composed performances from an experienced player. And um, if only he'd have been fit last season, you know, it might have, they might have ended up getting second class now, and they might not have had to go through all the qualification charade. But um, but no, fantastic uh, performance from him over both legs. And um, just 
let's just hope now that um, he can keep himself fit, keep up his form, and um, he'll be a useful asset for Krasnodar in the group stages of the Champions League and also in the chase for the um, RPL title, if we have a title race. Now, Capella's one of those funny players where two are, obviously, Krasnodar have Chelsea spoilers for a minute time, but <laughs> a regular RP, uh, EPL, English Premier League viewer, would see Cabela and, and remember him for his big money signing for Newcastle, was it six, seven years ago now? But he was a 23, 24-year-old player who'd not really done much outside of that brilliant season at Montpellier where he was on, say, Giroud and Belhanda and so on. But he's he's de- he's thirty now. He's developed so much. He's came on so much in his career, and he's 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 really playing to his strengths in this system. So you would hope that he's one of those where Chelsea's example of the world look at them and really underestimate. Now they won't. It's a it's a bit of a pathetic fallacy to be quite honest. But I just like to highlight just how good he has been for Krasnodar. And as mentioned, the Champions League group draw also took place earlier today, and the groups are now as follows. Uh, for Russian teams, Group A is Bayern Munich, Atletico Madrid, RB Salzburg, and Lokomotiv Moscow. So uh, rest in peace, Loco, because you're probably not getting out of that one. <laughs> group E is Sofia, Chelsea, Krasnodar, and Stade Rene. And Group F, Zenit, Dortmund, Lazio, and Club Bruges. So, David, what's your initial reaction to that? Well, I mean, Loco, we're going to struggle in any group. Um... But I honestly think they'll lose every game there. Um, that's a, it's a very, it's a very difficult draw. You know, they, they needed a miracle. Um, they needed a miracle draw out out of the third pot to get maybe a win or two out of the out of the group. But Salzburg um, should beat the Lokomotiv. Um, you know, they're just not looking strong since they got rid of Moranchuk and they've had such a poor. In my opinion, transfer window, um, but I just, I just think they're going to struggle all season, especially in Europe. Um, so I, I'm not even going to probably even bother watching any of their games. Um, it's just, there's going to be no motivation to watch that uh, absolute car crash. listening right now. But the other two groups, you know, the other two groups give give some hope. You know, has any has any got a as a top seed, they got a nice group, you know. Uh, Dortmund, Dortmund, the hardest team, obviously, out of top two, naturally. Um, but Lazio and, uh, and Bruges are solid opponents, you know, that you, you fancy them to be able to beat Bruges. Um, you know, a tough team, but you should, you know, on paper you're thinking, you know, okay, Zenit should beat Bruges. Um, and, you know, Lazio, um, Lazio will be tough. And you know, we know they've got a good goal scorer in Immobile. Um, so you'd be hoping to maybe get a win at home and and try for a draw away from home at the very least. Um, so you know, yeah, there's hope there that they could get out of the group in second or third. Um, you'd expect Dortmund to win the group, obviously, um, but but they should be able to be competitive in there. Um, so so uh, you know, there's there's chances, and then Krasnodar's group, um, similarly not too bad. Um, you know, Sevilla. Uh, tend to be a bit of a yo-yo club when it comes to their season. You know, one season they were they were really poor, as I recall. I'm sure Richard will correct me afterwards. But I thought a couple of years ago they had a poor season. Then obviously last year they, they had a good season again. So um, you know, we'll see see how we catch Sevilla. 
Um, but one of the weaker sides from pot one, so that's not a bad pull. Chelsea, I think Chelsea um, will, will struggle. They seem to be having quite a poor start to the season under Lampard. Um, and I think I think there's points to be maybe snuck from against Chelsea there. Um, and then the last team in the group, I forget already. Uh, <laughs> Ren. <laughs> oh, Ren. Well, when I saw it, I was like, okay. Right, that's that, that's easy, and then I realised that they're top of league. Um, but yeah, I'd, you'd still fancy Krasnodar should be able to um, have a good game against Ren, and you'd you'd want them to pick up at least a single win against them, if not both wins. Um, so yeah, ch- chances for both teams. You'd you'd expect Zenit to naturally do a little bit better, but I think uh, they both got they both got chances there of. Um, you know, staying in Europe until after Christmas, uh, whether it be in the Champions League or Europa League. So uh, yeah, not 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 a bad draw there. And locomotive, um, you know, just you know they might as well just give up already. <laughs> and Richard, what's your thoughts on the draw? Yeah, I'm going to. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to agree with David on loco and 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 you yourself, James. Um, I echo those RIP thoughts. Um, what on earth? Bayern Munich's going to do to them. I dread to think of what state that scoreline's going to be. Um, <laughs> Atletico, yeah, Luis Suarez is um, licking his lips again into them now as well. And then and then just to top it all off, they get Salzburg, who, you know, we all know are a really good side, you know, who, you know, gave Liverpool and um, who else was in Liverpool's group last season in the Champions League. They gave them both a good game now, I think it was, yeah. So I think we can write off locomotives' chances. Um, it looks like they probably will be going for a striker from now to the end of the window. I've seen them linked with a few names, but players like Mandzukic, who they've been linked with, don't particularly blow me away, I have to be honest. So I, I did, They did well at the weekend to beat Siskar, but I mean, Siskar themselves are notoriously inconsistent, aren't they, on the Goncharenko? So I think we can write off locomotive chances. Um, Zenit, I think, have the best chance of making it to the, to the uh, last 16. Um, Dortmund should win that group. The interesting one is Lazio uh, for Zenit because um, what was interesting last season is when I remember Lazio, before the COVID pandemic stopped play, they were right up there with Juventus, second place in the I think they were one point off them. And then obviously the games got bumped after the pandemic and Lazio have a small squad. Um, and people mentioned that as, you know, a reason, you know, games every three days is the reason why the title challenge fell away and they eventually finished fourth. But if you actually look at Lazio last season in the Europa League, they finished third in their group behind, and it wasn't behind two sides from top five leagues. It was actually behind Celtic and Club, and uh, sorry, Celtic and CFR Cluj. Now you know the Italian Serie A is way higher in level than you know the Scottish Premiership and the Romanian League. So Lazio couldn't get out of that group. Um, so it makes you wonder whether you know it wasn't just you know the bunch of the fixtures after the COVID pandemic stopped that you know affected them. It might have affected them in Europe, and you know. I know they've brought in a striker, Mukiri from Fenerbahce, but it makes you wonder what the squad depth's like. Um, so, you know, we're all talking about how will Zenit cope with the midweek and weekend games, but it could affect Lazio as well. So, um, and, you know, if they couldn't get out of a group, including Celtic and um, Cluj last season, who knows? They might be, they might be inconsistent teams. So, they've got a chance, Zenit. Um, they really have got to be looking to come third in that group. I mean, I don't underestimate Bruges because, you know, Last season in the Champions League, I think one of the games they gave Real Madrid a good goal for their money. Um, but they're not a strong 
aside as some of the other teams they could have got in pop four. Zenit, you know, they could have got Munch and Glad back. They could have got Ran, Stad Ran. So could have got Marseille. So I think they're, they're not as strong as those three teams. Um, but, you know, but still not to be underestimated, I don't think. But really, yeah, Zenit really should be looking to come third in that group minimum. Um, I don't think they'll catch Dortmund. They could try and surprise Dortmund at home, though. Because uh, you know Dortmund lost to Augsburg at the weekend. You know Dortmund are one of those sides; they're a good side, but they're prone to the odd bad results. So, could Zenit have it? I don't think I don't have much hope of Zenit getting anything from the tie in Dortmund. But maybe at home they could get a draw, pinch a win against um, Dortmund, and then you know it's all down to the games against Lazio, um, possibly, and then obviously they've got to be able to beat Bruges at home too. So Zenit have a chance in the last sixteen. I'd, I'd be expecting minimum third place though. And I mean, that might not necessarily be a bad thing for the RPL as a whole, because if Zenit finished third in that group, and one of the best four third-place teams, they get a seeding, you know, and for the last 32 in the Europa League draw, maybe try and have a run in the Europa League after Christmas. But they've done a chance again to the last 16 too. Um, it's between them and Lazio for second spot in that group. I think it's going to be quite close. Um, be interesting to see. Maybe I'd probably give Lazio a slight edge, but because I'm just not still not sure with Zenit in Europe. But they've got a chance, put it that way. And Krasnodar, yeah, I think they've got a chance, possibly of coming third. Ren atop of um, of Ligue 1, obviously. But again, they were in the same group Lazio were in last season in the Europa League, and they actually came bottom of it. You know, they came bottom below Celtic and um, Cluj. So you just never know. Again, have they got a small squad? Can they handle midweek weekend games? Um, be interesting to see. Asper Sevilla, what you mentioned there, David. Yeah, they lost to Slavia in 2018-19. Slavia Prague in the last 16 of the Europa League. And I think, actually, I remember that season. I think Krasnodar did actually beat them. I think they beat them in um, a Europa League group game. So, um, at home. I think it was at Krasnodar when they beat them. So, But yeah, will they go for La Liga Sevilla this season? Because it's really, you know, up for grabs, I think, you know. So, maybe that might affect Sevilla's sport process a bit. I mean, I, I still think I still think Chelsea and Sevilla will be the top two sides in that group. Although, like we're saying, Chelsea, you know, they let three goals in against West Brom at the weekend, so you know Lampard might be under a bit of pressure himself. And you know, they're not defending well at the minute. Chelsea, they've still got issues defensively, even though the front line does look electric. When they all click, the likes of Havertz, Werner, you know, they they Pulisic, they could really run right against teams. But you just never know. I think, yeah, possibly Krasnodar's target would be to fight with Ren for third place and Zenit to finish third minimum and possibly fight Lazio for second. But yeah, locomotive, I think, are a complete write-off. <laughs> yeah, what I'm looking forward to with Ren is, I'll, I'll quickly just go on Ren for one second here, is that they've got a, a young midfielder in Eduardo Camavinha, and he's a, a 17-year-old uh, box-to-box midfielder who's very, very highly rated right now. He's already made his full debut for France, and he's only just turned 17. So you can imagine just how highly he is rated. Um, he plays alongside Steven and Zonzi, and that's just a mouth-watering midfield battle with arguably what is one of Kras, part of, strongest part of Krasnodar's team in midfield. So I think the, uh, that battle there, and if whoever it is, be it Villena or Kaczynski or Olsen or whoever else, can keep Camavinia quiet and stop him dominating like he has all season long. And, and it, it, there's one moment in particular to keep an eye out for is, is it a goal last season against Montpellier he scored where he, he took on about seven or eight defenders in a slaloming run from midfield and, and beat the whole lot and slotted it in the bottom corner. It was kind of what like what that Jack Rodwell goal at Everton all those years ago when he was actually could play football. So it, it, he's a very... Um, that's who 
he's one to keep an eye on, and I'm very excited to see how he plays in the Ren game. And then yeah, I can't wait to watch Cam- against can't wait to watch Cam- Cam- myself. So, all the good it, things about him. Yeah. Yeah, it, it might be a little unfair to ask so early, but one word answer: which team, which one of the three sides is the best chance of reaching the knockouts? Looking at those groups, David first. Zinni. And Richard. Zinni. Yeah, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. It's uh, it, I like what Mark Bowen tweeted. Uh, Mark, who's of course we all know as the guy who runs the Zenit account, um, that it's it's a very Zenit draw, and he was quite disappointed about it. He wanted a bigger team, but and I can I can sympathise with that. But this is a very good chance for Zenit to progress. So moving on from success in Europe, we need to address the double-edged sword of Russian teams in Europe this season, and that's the failure in the Europa League. Dinamo Moscow lost against Lokomotiv Tbilisi and knocked out the first hurdle. And it's again the third year in a row in which the RPL's extra sixth spot has been squandered before the group stages even took part. Dinamo followed this up with a slightly lucky last-minute victory over Ahmad, but then lost 1-0 away at Kimki as the newly promoted side picked up their first win of the season. Not long after the game, sporting director Zelchko Buvac finally sacked Dinamo coach Kirill Novikov. Now that may have been the last draw, but in truth Novikov has been a dead man walking since the Europa League exit. So Richard, got reaction to that sacking alone? I think it was probably when we woke up the following day, the least surprising news of all. Um, I was actually debating after the game with some Dinamo fans on Twitter, and I think one of them posted something really funny. I said, I actually tweeted something in Russian to, I think, fcdin.com, the, the fan forum, and it's like, yeah, hey, I'm from England here, you know, it's obvious Novikov's not up to it now, maybe it's time for a replacement, maybe look abroad for a manager, and um, I think one of the Dinamo fans even tweeted himself, even in England they get it, you know, a lot, a lot of lines to that extent, which I found quite funny. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, and I had to explain later, then I follow Russian football for RFN, and, um, and then, yeah, I got into an engaging debate with a few of them on Twitter, and, you know, they were speaking about it and all that, and and then, um, but yeah, it was the least surprising news, I think, of, of all that Novikov was, I think he was, he was already on thin ice after the locomotive Tbilisi uh, debacle. Um, and, you know, you've got the impression he had to win both those games against Atmat and Kim, Himki to keep his job. And he didn't win those games because they've got a really horrific amount of fixtures coming up against all the top teams in the next five, six games. So it's not really a surprise. I think, you know, he was on very thin ice before that game and that was just the final straw, I think. Um so yeah, they've they've just got to move on now and, and get a new manager in. Um, and I think it was the correct decision, one hundred percent, because you know Novikov, has, as we said on the pod the other week, since he took charge at Dynamo, they've not been convincing. Even when they've been winning games, I mean, the perfect example of that was last season. They finished six, but look at what look at the results that led to them finishing six. I mean, they'd lost against Ural away, then they beat Ufa one nil away. I think it was at home, thanks to a penalty that they got. Um, you know, didn't, they didn't necessarily run through Ufa, convincingly. Um, and then in that game against Krasnodar, Krasnodar went out to 10 men early and they, you know, they got two goals. Uh, but obviously they were playing against 10 men and Krasnodar had injury issues at the end of the season. I think it was compounded by the, get, the fact that the, the game after they confirmed six brought the final game of the season against relegated Auburn, they lost at home 1-0. So that kind, of, that kind of summed it up, really. It was the most unconvincing qualification for Europe around and I think it finally showed this season. So no, no surprises that that Novikov uh, was sacked. He he had to win both those games, and he didn't because he was already on thin ice. And um, so the search begins for another manager. I think it's Dinamo's. I think it's a twentieth manager, permanent manager since the uh, the Russian Premier League began in 1992 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So 
you know, well, they've got to get, yeah, they've got to get, this is one that they've got to try and get right if they possibly can, but, you know, it's Dinamo. They seem to be stuck in a perennial, <laughs> never-ending cycle of just hiring and firing, it seems. So Dinamo Moscow 2 manager, Alexander Kulshi, has actually stepped up as a caretaker. And he is a he is a Dinamo legend. He used to play for the club. But Buvac reportedly doesn't wouldn't like him to take place. I mean, he'll give him a chance, but he's been looking abroad to replace Novikov. So, Richard, slightly to slightly preview a piece which is coming up on the site tomorrow, you've had a troll uh-huh. around for some potential candidates. Yes. Um, I, I read this morning, um, I think it was on sportbox.ru, that that Nov, uh, sorry, that Buvac um, is looking for a foreign coach. Um, and I've apparently heard that the next coach will be foreign. Um, and it was quite interesting as well on the forum FC din that I looked at. There was um, a poll on who they should go for next, and the vast majority of candidates of Dinamo supporters on that site, I think it, it was definitely over fifty percent went for a foreign coach as one of the options. As one of the options, it was just any foreign coach. And I think you know that is that's that's the route Dinamo have got to go down now. Um, I mean. I won't give away for the article tomorrow some of the foreign coaches that I've put on there, but let's just let's just look at it like they, they try another Russian manager. Who's out there and available? Or a Russian-speaking manager. Who's out there and available? Um, Galaktionov is obviously, Mikhail Galaktionov is obviously the Russian 21s manager. Um, you'd say he could be a possibility, but at the end of the day, he's got a brilliant crop of young under-21s players at the moment, and he's probably going to get the senior job after Church and stuff. I have a funny feeling that, like we say on the pod a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the Nations League game, so Russia have this um, this system since the Soviet times where they, they bring for a whole crop of new players at once. And if you're going to integrate a lot of those under-21s into the senior squad in a few years' time, then you might as well bring the manager that was coaching them with them and Church stuff's contracts till World Cup 2022 in Qatar. So you'd think, wait, Stanley will stand down as Spawn I coach then and... Galaktionov will take his, his position and be promoted from the 21. So I really don't think Galaktionov will leave the 21 job for Dinamo. And, you know, the other Russian manager who, you know, could be a possibility is Churchsoff going back there. But at the end of the day, he's coaching the, the Russian national team at the minute. He's enjoying it. I think when he's finished with Spornaya, he might want to, the romantic notion will be to take a job like Spartak, you know, or possibly with Dinamo Dresden if they're anywhere close to the Bundesliga. That bit of two romantic notion jobs for Churchesov post um, 2022 World Cup if Russia qualify because I think he'll probably leave the national team post then. So I don't really think that's realistic either and I don't think he'd want to do both jobs at the same time. And the only other Russian-speaking manager really I could think of would be Kerben Berdiev. Um But he didn't do particularly well at Rubin in his second spell and, you know, he's a very demanding manager. He demands a lot of control over things. I don't think he'd get on well with Buvac. So... After that, there's not really any Russian managers available or Russian-speaking managers available who could take the job. I don't think they'll give it to Kulshi after the experiment with Novikov failed. Um, I think they've got to go abroad for Dinamo. I think they've no other option. And because Buvac is such, um, has such knowledge of German football due to all the years he spent as Jürgen Klopp's assistant at uh, Mainz, Dortmund and Liverpool, I think the Bundesliga is the best bet. You know, if you have... Um, a sporting director who's had a playing and managerial and a coaching career in Germany, then, you know, he's going to have more knowledge of Germany than any other market. So you do well to lean on that. And I think, I think the next coach will be um, from, from preferably probably the Bundesliga uh, or Bundesliga two. They might look for a, uh, an assistant coach at one of the top clubs or possibly one of the younger managers impressing at the bottom of the Bundesliga or top of Bundesliga two. I think that's probably the route that Dinamo will go down. 
yeah, and getting a manager from Germany is very much in vogue at the moment. You've seen that happen in in lower leagues across Europe and then and, and the first divisions across Europe. They've been plucking, as you said, assistants, coaches, first team coaches, managers from all over the Bundesliga and, and the t- Bundesliga too. So this is this is a big one from Buvac, and you would expect that now he's got full control and he can pick who he wants. He will go to what he knows, but it's certainly not a snap decision and. Keep up, keep up, keep on the site uh, tomorrow morning for or afternoon for that uh, article on on the ten candidates who can can, I, can, I, can I just come in there, James, as well? Just one last thing. One thing I will say is is that that's a very important. If that is true about them going for a foreign coach, then I think that's already a, a good sign that the DMO board are going to let Buvac, you know, have a say in this, and they are going to lean on his advice. My fear would have been that they might not have done that, you know, because if this hadn't been Buvac, there'd been any other, you know. A little sporting director, they might have just, just, you know, plucked some modern Russian candidate from nowhere, even when there's not many of them around, you know. So yeah. I was, I was really hoping this was the first real test today that, you know, how much influence is Buvac going to have a sporting director? And I think if those reports are true, that Dinamo are going to consider a foreign manager, and that's a sign that he does have quite a bit of influence there. So I'm happy that Dinamo board are now leaning on Buvac. They might as well use him because he's there, and they might as well lean on all the experience that he's got. So um, I think that's. A good sign if that article is true. Of course, it has to be true. You don't know, it might be hearsay, but I have a funny feeling Dinamo will go for it. I think Buvac, that's already a good sign that they're leaning on his advice. Now, my recommendation, obviously, if I would have to pick out one name in the hat, it would be they would go foreign. And of course, by foreign, I mean they'll have to go to Yerevan and get good old Alexander Gregorian back in. But unfortunately, <laughs> he is uh, managing a RAR at the minute, so he's, he's, he's busy and is unavailable. But like I say, it's not a snap decision. And, and despite the money spent in the final third, Dinamo have been abject in an attacking sense all season, to put it to put it frankly. The early season defences still the all but melted away and they've won just, won just one game in five. And that itself was a 92nd minute header from the central defender, Ivan Odets. So, David, do you think this underperforming is, is due to Novikov? Is, is Novikov himself struggling? Surely the book must stop with him and he was given a minor fortune to revamp the squad. Yeah, I mean, the squad, you know, on paper is decent. You know, they got, I think, arguably the strong strong point is the midfield. Um, you know, Shunin in goal is a good goalkeeper for the Russian Premier League. You know, he might have cost them in Europe, um, but very good goalkeeper, you know, but very good midfield duo with uh, Fomi and Moro and Kabori as, as backup. Um, and, you know, with, with Komolichenko... Um, Boone and G, even to a point, who has done okay uh, of late up front. You know they, they have a good selection of strikers. Um, obviously they had or have uh, Maximilian Philip. Uh, obviously a talented guy, uh, just never never utilised right or you know never had the you know had the uh, let's not say had the could be asked to try. Um, <laughs> so didn't work out for him, but you feel like he, he could have been utilised and, and used better. You know, he, he started started the Dino well. Granted, it was mainly set plays. He scored a couple of penalties and free kicks, but he started all right. And then you know he was he was getting taken off at half time uh, and things like that. You know, it, it's strange. Novikov um, Novikov was was one to make. A lot of half-time substitutions. One one of the only managers in the league who did that. It, it was really odd. Um, he put 
unrelenting faith in some of the young players like Karapuzov, um, Shkolik, Moskvichov, Gruliov. These guys are all coming on um, and playing good amounts of minutes without really doing a great deal, like, you know, in terms of helping the team go forward. Uh, when they have all these you know, experienced, highly paid players waiting to go, um, and I think that maybe you know it's it's good you know to have to have young players and try and blood them, but some of the better players in the squad, like Moro and Formi, you know, young as it is, um, so it was strange to see him do that. Um, so yeah, I think just 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 bad management uh, from Novikov. You know, the squad squad is is good enough. Um, you know, Shemansky's had a had a good start to the season as well. So the squad's good enough. They can get a manager in who who knows what he's doing uh, and can deal with managing in Russia, which obviously we know is difficult for foreign coaches. Then, then in theory, they should, you know, they they quite easily should have beaten Lokomotiv Tbilisi and they should have been able to give Granada a go in the in the Europa League. Um, and they and they should be able to compete compete in uh, in the Premier League. Um, for you know a top top five top six position, more than likely. Yeah, without a doubt, it's it has to be on the manager. And to be honest, I think Dinamo's issues are a little bit of Maximilian Phillips in in macrocosm. So they far too often arrogantly underestimate their opponents. Both Kimki and Lokomotiv Tbilisi are just sheer evidence of this, and it comes down to the manager. In attack, they rely far too much upon individual quality rather than effective tactical moves. Hardly any any of their attacks are actually positional, and they're all just individualistic. Be it in G on the counter, Komachenko header, or from a, a Phillips at piece or a free kick. Novikov's entire game, like his predecessor Dmitry Koklov, is based around fighting off the ball and around defensive solidity. Now, they're brilliant at limiting chances and are probably one of the sturdiest defences in the, in the league. I mean, and with Shunin behind them is the last line of defence. It's no coincidence that they've had the least shots on goal and amongst the least goals conceded in, in the entire time of both these managers there. But Novikov only improved upon Koklov's results purely due to the higher calibre of player at his side because of the increased funding that he was given. Now, Dinamo has a long-term vision off the pitch. That's clear what they're trying to do. And, and hopefully with the appointment of Buvac and and giving him more control. It was quite a coup at the time when he when he came in as sporting director. But now they need a progressive manager to employ it on the pitch more than anything. Koklov and Novikov are club legends that, that came up from the inside. And, and Dinamo tried to do a little bit of a Galyitsky where they, where they need to promote from inside. But the two men just, to be honest, didn't have the talents to be able to do so. The talent to be able to manage a squad or the respect of some of the players, to be frank, I don't think... Maximilian Philip, every time you see him listening to his manager on the sidelines, he just he looks like he's just not caring a jot in the world. And ironically, speaking of Philip, it seems like he's now off to Wolfsburg on loan. And that was a twenty million pound signing a year ago, and it just speaks volumes of how disappointing he has been. Despite his figures looking padded out, he he scores or assists one in three, which is is pretty decent in a in a defensive league. But like I say, he's a set piece taker. He takes all the penalties. Half of his goals were penalties. Two of them were free kicks. These, because he's such an effective set-piece taker, it pads out his overall genuine effect on the game. And him moving on is just emblematic of Dinamo's issues right now. So as a way of linking this and what's going to be the next topic together, uh, both Rostov and Dinamo failed to reach the group stages. 
this is, the, as mentioned at the top, this is the third season in a row that the RPL has actually squandered the extra European spots and have thus now dropped back below Portugal in the coefficients. And, and for next season's European spots, there'll only be five qualifying. So, David, why do you think this is? Because you've been particularly scathing over these Europa League playoff games of late. Um, well, this this particular season, we had the we had the bad luck of Rostov qualifying based on only half a season's form. You know they played so well in the first half of the season under the form of Shmurinov that it was almost impossible for them to drop out of the top five, although they almost did. Um, you know, they scraped through with some with some average form in the second half of the season and therefore qualified for the Europa League. Not really, you know, if we were basing it purely off 2020, you'd no way of letting them qualify. Um, and so it, it always looked like they were going to struggle. Um, you know, the Israeli teams we've seen do well in the past. I remember they, they gave us in it a competitive couple of games a few years back. So we knew it was going to be a struggle. I think I think they just qualifying on half seasons form and in general last year a lot of teams underperformed, which allowed Rostov to keep that to keep that position up top. You know, um, in theory, the Russian league should have every year Zenit, Siska, Lokomotiv, Spartak, Krasnodar as top five. You know, they're five, what should be five strong teams backed with money, who, you know. At Champions League, depending on which which team has the best squad and in you know whatever year it is, you know we've seen Siska be dominant in the Champions League for many years, and now are in the Europa League. We've seen Lokomotiv go up. We've seen Spartak be Champions League, Europa League, and now nowhere. Um, so in theory, those those five clubs should be there every year. But the, but the thing is, they're not. So every year, a team bottles it. Last year, it was Spartak's turn, and it let another team sneak in. And if that other team isn't then up to it. Then it's game over. Sixth place, you know, Russia owned the sixth place over many years of, of decent results in Europe um, versus Portugal, who were having poor results. Um, Portugal then had a very good year a couple of seasons ago, while Russia struggled with all the teams going out uh, last season. Um, so the sixth spot experiment, which while only has lasted for three years, um, it just happened again uh, on every occasion. The cup winner either was a poor team who defaulted their European spot or had already qualified for Europe, and then it did fall to sixth. And as we well know, uh, the RPL mid-table is one of the most competitive um, sections of any league, probably in European football. Um, you know, any any of the, any of probably eight or nine teams in the league could come, could qualify in sixth place every season. And we've seen that, you know, FCU qualified six a few years ago. Um, they had a good run. They, they got through two rounds and, and lost to Rangers by one goal um, in the final qualifying round. So they had a very good run, um, but it cost them that season. They came uh, in the relegation playoffs because they struggled in their early part of the season to manage uh, two competitions. Uh, because they then dropped down. Arsene Sula was the one who, out of the pack, who then had a good season, finished sixth, the cup defaulted and against it went to them. Um, and they fell at the first total just like Rostov and Dinamo did against Nefshi Baku because they, their good season was based on loan players. Um, you know, it was Sunzu, Kadiri, 
Bakayev all disappeared because they were on loan. Uh, and then they entered Europe with a weak squad and had an average season the following season. Um, so as much as the competitiveness in the middle of the table is decent, um, because there's no standout sixth club, um, it, it, I think it's hard for that sixth club then to make that step up. Um, so while, while the sixth spot is decent, uh, Russia ultimately needs a sixth club you know, to step up and be a level above the rest of the pack there consistently. You know, we've got so many clubs there who have had European football in the past. Dinamo have had it, Rostov have had it, Rubin have had it, Ufa and Arsenal have now had it. Um, I don't think it's a big ask, that big of an ask, to have another team be a bit more consistent over a few years. Obviously, personally, I'd love it to be Rubin, you know, to get them back in Europe <laughs> where they were, you know, <laughs> as recently as uh, 2016, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they, they made the group stages, you know, played against Liverpool, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's a very delicate and complicated situation, but that's my viewpoint on it, is that it's almost too competitive a mid-table that whoever qualifies, whoever just happens to come on top of the pack that year, you know, this year Ufa are way down again, they're having a poor season. Um, and we're probably looking at, uh, well, I mean, it's so competitive, the top, the top, even the top of the competitive, but we're looking who's currently in sixth. Locomotive, Sochi, Krasnodar, Rubin, Dinamo, Ahmad um, and Siska are all within three points of each other. So it, it's going to be another very difficult year to, to decide. And granted, sixth isn't there this year. Um, but yeah, it, it's almost too competitive. It could be a blessing in disguise that it's not there this year with uh, potentially Sochi or Akhmat getting it. They're probably two of the most unpopular teams in Russia. But yeah, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. And and part of my issue is it's it's very systemic. It's stru- it's structural, and I must sound like a broken record because every other week I'm talking about some systemic or structural issue in Russia. But I discuss them so often because they are so large. And this one, it it comes down to finances. The finances just aren't evenly spread around Russia. There is not enough TV money. The the game to game money is it's just negligible for a lot of the teams. That's why you see Rubin, for example, gave out free tickets a couple of a couple of years ago to anybody who was in the area just to get them in. Now oh, here's a ticket to one for free. Fine, just come in and fill the stadium, sort of thing. But it's because these the top five are, are privately owned. They're the big ones, the big names that bring in all the money, that bring in all the attention. And then outside of that, there's mild interest, but it's not the huge interest to let's just pump this team full of money and get them up there because quite frankly there just isn't the interest amongst the country and and because they don't have that we in, in Russia the RPL we don't have a, a structured monetary advancement of, of a real a real significant amount of money like they do in England for example where it's spread across the whole league or like they do in Spain where the top teams get a hell of a lot and just get pr- pummeled up there and get promoted up, up there financially because of that there's inevitably going to be an, an issue where Russia as a league overperformed, to be frank, to get fifth in the coefficients. And then Arsenal, Ufa and Rostov overperformed to get to the position they were. And when no, you can't keep that performance up for so long, especially after a long break, it's inevitable that you will drop back down again. As a Spartak fan, obviously, I will say that it's a bit of a shame that Spartak couldn't get the cup win and get there because the the quality of player, the standard they've got, the amount of money, chiefly, is the main reason. 
And the, the way they're playing right now, it would have been quite mouth-watering to have them alongside Siska, hopefully, in the group stages. But nevertheless, Rostov's purple patch highly deserved the place. Problem is, they're, they're playing poorly now. And that's why they went out at first. And to move on is, of course, on to Rostov, the last of the three teams who played in the in the European qualifiers. And Rostov are the weirdest, some of the, one of the weirdest teams to cover right now. But firstly, however, there is some transfer news to get out of the way, and that is that Eldor Shomorodov, uh, Rostov's Uzbek striker and top goal scorer last season, has joined Genoa for €9 million Euros today. And then that announcement was followed soon after that Rostov replaced him with another Uzbek-born but Russian striker, Vladimir Obukov. Now, Obukov was a former Spartak Academy player who came became a little bit of a Fener-El journeyman, uh, moving from Kuban to Mordovia and Tambov, before eventually moving into the RPL with Tambov and Sochi two weeks before that, but that's a strange episode. But last season, Obukov did score seven goals in 20 games for struggling side, which is respectable. But I can't personally get behind this one. I think it's a weird signing. So, David, what... What do you reckon of these two moves, Shomorodov going to Genoa first? Um, I mean, personally, I I think it's uh, a strange one. Um, I, I'm still personally of the opinion that it was just a purple patch, that good run of form, um, and that maybe he's not the quality of player to do it again. So I think it's a risk from Genoa. It makes me think that they've not scouted effectively. Um, but maybe they're just desperate for a striker and, and this is one they've decided to go for. We, do, we Obviously, we don't know. Maybe it's just agent work. Agents have recommended him, said he scored a load last year, uh, without with them failing to mention that he's only scored twice in, in the whole of 2020 or, or whatever. Um, so I think it's a strange move. Um, I think Obakov going to Rostov is better. Um, I think it's not a bad, not a bad signing. I, I, I'd like to imagine... And I am imagining that they probably will bring in another striker alongside him. I think um, it's a good good one to bring in as a very quick, you know, it's one in, one out. Good rush forward, can score goals, uh, similar style, you know, big big guy. So um, a good a good quick replacement. But I'd like to I'd like to see them uh, go out there and get another striker before the end of the window. Um, you know, one in, one out, two in. That'd be that'd be a nice, nice little move. But um, considering the caliber of RPL strikers, and I think it's not too bad. You know, you saw Lutsenko go out there for Arsenal Tudor and score fifteen last season. Um, so if Rostov can get can get play going and create chances, uh, you know, we we know that if they can do that, we know that a striker is going to get on the end of them, as we saw with Shomorodov. He went and scored like whatever it was, like. 40 and 15 goals in the opening 15, 16 games of the season or whatever. So, um, so yeah, not a bad move, but I'd, I'd like to see them do something else. Um, but Shomorodov to Genoa, I think, is a risk for Genoa. Uh, but I, I'd like to be proven wrong. I'd like him to do well there because, um, you know, I, I quite like him, but I think he might struggle. Yeah, pers- I, I agree with that entirely personally. And this is just part of Rostov's complete overhaul of their striking department this season. Now, not a single Rostov striker has actually scored yet in the RPL, which speaks volumes about the way Shamarodov is playing right now. And he and Bakhtiar Zianutinov have both departed for Genoa and Siska, respectively. 
And Rostov have then replaced them with Obukov, uh, former player Dima Polos. And they've also signed young Macedonian starlet David Toshevsky, who's not really going to be too much involved and is more of one for the future. So, Richard, do you think this is enough or will Rostov need to strengthen further? No, I, I agree with David. I think Rostov needs another, another forward. Um, Obukov, obviously, he's done well at Tambov, but, you know, I think that they need somebody else. I think I think they really do need another striker in there. Um, yeah, the young Macedonian guy, is it to- Toshevsky, is it? They, they've obviously, they've brought him in for the future, as you were saying, but Paulus isn't really a goal scorer. Not a frequent goal scorer anyway. He's a useful player, you know, he can he can play up front out wide, but he's not really a frequent goal scorer. Obikov, I think, can chip in with a few, but like David, I'd like to see Rostov buy another, another forward. That's what they need. And um, I also think as well that they need another player in another position, which is um, a, a young attacking midfielder. Because if you look at their, um, their attacking midfielders right now, you know, you've got Yelemenko, Mamayev, etc. They're, they're creative attacking midfielders. They're getting quite old now. So I think they should use the proceeds from the Shamurov deal, not just to source another striker, but to also find a young um, attacking midfield player or creative player. Because, you know, they're not going to go on forever, Yeremenko and um, Amaya. They've not got much left in the tanky. Onoff's getting on as well now. So I think that's probably what they're going to do. I, I think Christmas has come early for Rostov with that uh, Shamurov deal to Genoa. I think, you know, I'm really stunned at the, the fee, considering he's been in you know, really poor form throughout 2020. Like I'm saying, like you guys, you two guys just said, I think, I think it was a purple patch for him. Um, and, you know, okay, during that purple patch, he did look like he was a really good player scoring goals, but he's dropped off big time. Um, I'd love him to prove, like you guys, I'd love him to prove me wrong in Syria, but I, I can't help but think, you know, we've panicked a bit here. I think it's a bit of a panic buy. Um, but I don't think Rostov can complain too much. They're getting a good chunk of money for him. Um, and, like I say, yeah, another striker and an attacking midfielder, please, to uh, to replace him. And um, with the striker, I think yeah, Rostov is surely going to go abroad with this this one because they've got a foreign spot freed up now with um, Shmurodov leaving, so they might as well take advantage of it and um, use it. Maybe look to Scandinavia for a young player, maybe even leagues like Switzerland, see if they can find find a young gem they can polish up or some of a decent goal scoring record there. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say another striker Rostov need and uh, a young attacking midfield player. Now, staying on the the whole Rostov fire sale and and re- reports in the in the transfer markets, if if rumours are to be believed that it could continue further, as Matthias Norman and Denis Hadzikadunic have been linked with the European top five leagues, with the latter West Ham in particular. So, David, quickly, do you think either Norman or Hadzikadunic could make it in the in the top leagues in in Europe? Well, I don't think Hadzikadunic is uh, is Premier League quality just yet. Um, even just last week, he got exposed big time against Arsenal Tula um, for that first goal uh, that they scored on the break. Um, you know, he, he only came into the squad as a first teamer really um, in the early stages of last season. Um, and while he's kept his position, I, I'm not quite sure he's at that level yet. So it was a surprise when I saw when I saw the links. I was like, you know, blimey. Um, West Ham must be really, and I think you said afterwards to me that they're like skin. West Ham must be really desperate if they're if they're going to sign him um, as a as a player for the Premier League. Um, I think he's not ready yet. I think he would even need to take another step or stay at Rostov and carry on improving. 
Uh, Norman, I think, could play in a top five league. Um, and I think considering they've now dropped out of Europe, it, it would seem more likely that he could go. Um, you know, he's an ambitious player. He's a very good player. They want to argue one of the better centre midfielders in, in the league. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think he could do well in, in a top five league. Um, you know, Norwegians are all, are all the rage right now. Um, you know, with Haaland and Sorloth and Halga, so and Odegaard as well. So, um, I think uh, I think they would be demand if if he wanted to go. And considering they've just dropped out of Europe, disappointingly, you you wouldn't be you wouldn't be surprised to see him go. Uh, it would be a huge loss, obviously, for Rostov, and they they'd need to immediately go out and buy someone uh, who could slot into that role. Um, just because they'd need another body in him. You know, you've got solid midfielders with with Hashimoto and Glebov and. Yeremenko playing a bit more deeper of late as well. Uh, but they definitely need someone to replace him because he is that good. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to watch watch that space and see see if anything happens with those two. Yeah, and it's interesting to remember that for those who may not know, Norman, of course, came from England actually. He was he, he was on loan at Mulder, but he was he was at the Brighton Academy for a little while after signing from Mulder. And He's came on leaps and bounds, and I personally think that he is Rostov's best player. But for Rostov, the season in general has been quite topsy-turvy, I think is the, the way of putting it. That I've, I've, I've tried to think of it for a while, because my I, mean, I was sitting down in my initial thing, oh, the title of the podcast, what can we go for? What can I think of? And and it was Rostov's rocky start. Well, to be fair, it's it's unfair to say Rostov have had a rocky start when they're currently sitting pre- an impressive third in the standings. They've only lost two games and and have a, have a pretty positive goal difference with a, with a solid defence as always, but not all is quite as rosy under the surface. Of course, we were granted a three 0 technical victory over Rota due to the former's COVID, and without summer signing Kento Hashimoto's goals, there would only be three players have actually scored one apiece this season. Their attack is totally stifled, and the, the, all of their goals come from set pieces. But the defence is still as, as strong as ever. And, it can only get better once, in in my opinion, the, the best defender in the in the team, the Dmitry Chesyakov, returns from a long term injury. Now he did come on at the weekend for his first appearance of the season, but the Arsenal game was the first time they've scored three in a game since March. And the system is difficult because on the on the central striker, particularly under Carpen, the centre forward is has often suffered suffered under purple patches of flying confidence alongside barren runs, just as Shomorodov has. So Shomorodov himself scored 16, got 16 goals and assists in 20 RPL games at the start of last season, only then to go on to score just one in the next 16. And Rostov's defence, even when not pressing high, is, is very dynamic throughout the team from the base of the defence all the way up. And even with when they aren't pressing, it, it demands very high energy levels. There's a lot of running to be done across the team. The wingers, Yonov and Bayramyan, usually sit right on the defensive line and don't allow the opposition to stretch. The fullbacks, on the contrary, are thrown high upon the opponent's fullbacks in attack and requires lots of synchronised movement. And it's, it's the opposite of Dinamo in that sense, in that they do have a lot of positional attacks. But as a result, the team have late struggles going forwards. And I just have to wonder how much of that is by them being wrecked by COVID. Just they, they, they've spent nine months out, or six months out, sorry, apologies. They've spent six months out. They just came back and then they, they were wrecked by COVID with 13 or 14 players who who contracted a disease which, granted, isn't, is quite asymptomatic in elite-level athletes' bodies, but 
it's the underlying conditions, the longer-term underlying conditions of what it can do to your fatigue and your fitness levels that are still undiscovered yet. And we're only hearing a little bit about what it can actually do to the body in the longer term. And then straight after that, the, the, the playing, they went from not playing in so long to, to suddenly playing a game every three days and then just a two-week break and then straight back into it again every three days. With on top of that now the European games. So I, I just wonder if this not playing for such a long time, then the constant plays with the COVID obviously added to that is just taking a bit of a toll on the body for for a team who are real, an all-action style. Perhaps I'm being a little bit kind on Rostov there because, of course, the, the counter-argument of that is that all teams play the same, the same fixtures at the same time and whatever, but it's just it seems bizarre that Rostov have just fell off a cliff so suddenly after being so good and that's the only real break in between is, is that not playing. And on that bombshell, this has been it for this week's episode of the RFN podcast. As always, check out the website at russianfootballnews.com. And this weekend, two of the sides we've discussed in depth in, the, in our European qualifier special actually face off against each other as Dinamo host Krasnodar in Moscow on Sunday. And then the big game of the weekend, however, is the top two meeting on Saturday night as Spartak host Zenit. We'll be covering the aftermath of that game and more, including Ufa versus Rotter at the bottom of the table next week. And as one last little note, keep note for your diaries, as tomorrow on Friday is the Europa League group stage draw. Well, Cisco will find out their opponents and they're in pot one for that draw, which is on tomorrow afternoon. David, where can everyone find you online? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at RFN underscore David. And Richard? You can find me on Twitter at at RichDPike89, at RichDPike89. That's been the RFN Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар. Но мяч берет на нерешительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле самых ловких и смелых плечов. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.